What's up? This is uh, Nick and Prajit. And this is On Soccer. So today we've got a really special guest on our hands, uh, someone that me and Nick have admired for a very long time, very involved in U.S. soccer and, you know, sort of helped us learn a lot about it as kids. So we're very excited about, excited to have him. And, you know, one thing above anything else is that he can, he's very good at using his words to show his passion about a topic. And that really comes across in all his work. Um, it's an honor to have Grant Wall uh, today with us to record. How are you doing today, Grant? Doing great. Thanks for having me, guys. For sure. Yeah, we're excited. Yeah. Um... I just remember when I was younger, just a quick side note, buying uh, the Mara Bottelli Sports Illustrated cover <laughs> at the grocery nice. store. And, and uh, yeah, so it just means a lot um, that you, you know, give us some time today. Um, just to start off, we'd love to hear a little bit about your origin story, how you found soccer uh, in your life. Yeah, I mean, everyone's got a story, right? Uh, I grew up in Kansas City on the Kansas side. Um, like so many kids played youth soccer and and actually like so many kids quit uh at a certain age like right before high school um to do other sports in high school I played basketball I ran track and cross country uh I liked soccer it just seemed like uh not something that I wanted to play in, in high school and you know it was interesting for me growing up in Kansas City in the early 80s we obviously didn't have an outdoor league at that point but the MISL Indoor League did exist, and for a stretch was actually really popular. It was filling Kemper Arena in Kansas City for the Kansas City Comets. And so, like, my first favorite soccer team to watch professionally was the Kansas City Comets. It had some great <laughs> memories uh, from over the years there, and they let my youth soccer team play on the field before, you know, a, a game that they had, and it was just, like, the coolest thing. So I had that interest in soccer from that age, but then didn't really get totally into the outdoor game until 1990 during that World Cup. And I watched almost every game of the 1990 World Cup. I remember we didn't have cable television in our, in our family. And so I watched it all in Spanish on Univision. And Andres Cantor, the legend who still does amazing work, called like every single game and and that's what got me into it and that was the u.s being in the world cup for the first time in like 40 years so that had a pretty big impact on on my growing interest in the sport and then i got to college in 92 at princeton ended up covering for the school newspaper the princeton men's team uh, which was coached by Bob Bradley, which had Jesse Marsh as the star player, which got to the final four, surprisingly, in 93, uh, where they lost to Bruce Arena's Virginia team, the Claudia yeah. Arena. Oh, wow. and, um, and so that was sort of me getting into the sport. And, and kind of in a parallel way, back in high school, I decided that I wanted to write for Sports Illustrated someday. Like that was gonna be my career goal. It was never necessarily cover soccer for Sports Illustrated. I thought I might 
cover basketball, which is actually what I did as well for a long time. Um, and, you know, it just kind of went from there. Got you. And then, you know, speaking of that connection with Bob Bradley in college, you know, like, you know, today he's like, you know, a legend in the game, one of our biggest influences. Um, we'd love to hear about more like about how that connection came about, how you really, you know, became tight with Bob and how that led to your professional development. I mean, it's funny because I joke with Bob now and I, and I tell him, you know, I've been asking you dumb soccer questions since 1992. Wow. You know? <laughs> and it's, it's kind of crazy because what are the chances? Like, I, I didn't go to, to Princeton with the idea that I would meet people there who I would be covering three decades later almost. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that was pretty interesting. But like, um, what was really cool was in covering Bob Bradley's team as a student you know, newspaper person, he treated me with respect as if I was a professional reporter. Wow. And, and I always appreciated that at the time. And he could tell that I, I wanted to, to do a good job. And, uh, and so when they made that run to the NCAA Final Four in my sophomore year, uh, I remember doing a story on Bob for the Princeton Alumni Magazine, which was sort of my first magazine story as opposed to a newspaper story. And, um, you know, I still have a copy of that story. It's kind of cool to go back and and look at. But that year, I won a scholarship to do a summer project that I proposed in the summer of 94 that I couldn't do on campus. And so I pitched this project in the World Cup summer that was in the United States of going to Buenos Aires for three weeks and reporting there about the soccer culture around the sport and then going for three weeks to Boston and reporting around the culture of baseball in the Boston area where it just so happened Argentina was playing its first two World Cup games. Um, and so that ended up being just a tremendous experience, but Bob Bradley actually connected me to the people at Boca Juniors because I didn't have any connections down in Argentina and he just really helped me in that sense. And I ended up having a, a really good reporting experience. It was the first time I'd ever left the United States. Uh, I was on my own and I traveled overnight with the Boca Juniors fans to a game in Rosario and just got a lot of, material for magazine style stories and realized that after that whole trip that this is really what I want to do for a living, this type of work. And, uh, and that really sort of pushed me in the soccer direction as well, because uh, I had a good experience covering the Princeton team, did feature stories, did this project in Argentina. And then I ended up going back to Argentina uh, for three months the following year to do my senior thesis on politics and soccer in Argentina. Wow. Interesting. So a lot of the connections I'd made on that first trip, I used on my second trip and it kind of became my adopted country. But, you know, even for my like academic, my biggest academic project in college, I was able to make it be related to sort of what I wanted to do for a living eventually. Wow. And, and you mentioned uh, you were, you went to Princeton with Jesse Marsh. Did you ever have like, I'm curious, like classes with him or interactions with him as a student? It's funny. Jesse Marsh and I spent a few days together in the same room of the health center Wow. when I got food poisoning. And I still don't remember totally the reason Jesse was in there. But 
Um, but like, yeah, it, it was just, it, we had sort of known each other because I covered the team. And so like, knew each other a little bit that way, but um, really got to know each other uh, at that point. And so uh, obviously at that time, Jesse was just hoping that he might be able to make it as a professional soccer player. I remember him, like, he kind of didn't even think he'd be drafted by an MLS team that he might have to go to like the A league, which at the time was like the, the second division. And he ended up being drafted in MLS by DC United. And, uh, and Bob was the assistant coach at first to Bruce arena for DC United. And then Bob became the head coach of the Chicago fire, won MLS cup in his first year, 98 and, and brought Jesse out there too. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And then, you know, on a similar uh, note, talking about Bob, um, how do you think that his uh, sort of like managerial approach changed throughout the years from when you were following him at Princeton to when he was at the USMNT? Like, was that same intensity there? Because like, when I see Bob Bradley, I think of like, you know, very stern look, very intense. Like, was he the same exact way in uh, college as well? I mean, in a demeanor sense, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, always an intense guy, always challenging players, always yeah. demanding a lot. Gotcha. Um, but I think also too, really, really creating a, a, a team spirit inside the team that was very good and, and positive. Um, and you know, there are ways in which Bob I think has changed a lot over the years in terms of maybe how his team plays. I think he's a little his teams are a more freewheeling now than than maybe they were um, in you know before his days as as U.S. national team coach. One thing I found that was always interesting was Bob is actually one of the most important people in my life, if I'm being honest. And and he's a guy that I have gone to even recently to to ask sort of life advice Mm -hmm. from. And and yet I still cover him. And and (laughs) so it, it does make things interesting like the the one stretch where bob and i maybe didn't have as good a relationship was when he was the u.s national team coach Mm. which i think is kind of understandable given that if you're a national team coach in any country you're going to get criticized at times and you know and jesse was actually bob's assistant at the 2010 world cup and so i kind of just from a a personal standpoint was glad when Bob was no longer the U S coach, even though I think he did a very good job overall, when you look at what was achieved during his tenure, just from a personal perspective, like he and I maybe had a bit more tension during that stretch than we have had before or after. I'm curious. It was, was Michael Bradley ever like around at at Princeton when he was younger or was he a little bit, was he already My first memories of Michael were, I remember talking to Bob on the phone at the 98 MLS Cup final when I was writing the story on his Chicago Fire team that ended up winning. And at one point in that phone conversation with me, he had to get off his phone briefly to, I think, talk on his cell phone to to basically say goodnight to his son, Michael, who was like not very old at the the time. and so that's kind of my first memory of, of Michael. Um, and it's always interesting when you talk to, when you start, when I start interviewing 
children of people I've covered yeah. over mm-hmm. the years, you know, and, and you build relationships after a while. And so my relationship with Michael today is, is pretty separate from my relationship with, with Bob. They're both good. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, recently I interviewed Gio Reyna and like, yeah. you know, I interviewed his dad and his mom when they played. And, wow. and so that's, yeah. uh, it's a little weird, but it's kind of <laughs> cool. No, and then, you know, on the topic of interviewing kids like Gio Reyna, you know, obviously like we have a lot of like, you know, young stars that like when, when the hype is there around them, the hype really gets there. Like they're put on the, sa- on the stage really quick. So I don't know, just in your experience interviewing people like Gio Reyna or like, you know, like even with Freddie Adu, like we, like we were um, going to talk about, just like with younger kids that are set for stardom. What is sort of like their mentality like when you're interviewing them? Do they seem like they're very under pressure? Like, I just want to know, like, in general, what you think about interviewing those type of players that are that young and under that kind of spotlight. I mean, every player's different, you yeah. know? Like, yeah. and this was my, this recent interview I did, my podcast with Gio Reyna was the first one I'd done with him. Wow. And he's, he's 17, but he talks the game like he's much older already. Mm-hmm. And, and it felt a little like talking with his dad, which about, about the sport, which kind of makes sense when you realize how often Gio talks to his dad about a game after the game. Uh, um, you know, Michael's similar to Bob in that way. They, and, and they have the same sort of vocal mannerisms, which is kind of amusing. Um, but... It, with Freddie Adu, you know, back in the day, I can remember first interviewing Freddie when he was 13 years old in 2003. And I was, I called my editor afterward and said, this kid is, I could be like the first superstar on the men's side for U.S. soccer, but he's also an amazing interview. Wow. Um, and not every kid is, you know, like it, it just depends on the situation. You learn at least I, you know, in my job, I learn pretty quickly who are the best interviews and who aren't. Mm-hmm. And if I'm covering a, a game and doing like, you know, post game interviews, you, you, you figure out like who are the three best people for me to go to after a game for a good quote and ride those folks, you yeah. know, yeah. And, and you learn which ones aren't as good. Keeping in mind that over the years, people can change. And so like, somebody who maybe wasn't a great interview when they were 18 becomes a much more interesting interview when they're 25. That happens too. Mm. Yeah. And, and you mentioned Freddie Adu and, you know, we're really looking forward to your podcast on it. Um, he was referenced as the next Pele and now he, you know, doesn't play really. What do you, what do you think, necess- you know, just to summarize, what, what were the main key things that went wrong in his career? It's, it's really been an interesting project to, to do a really ambitious six episode podcast series, three hours of content on the Freddie Adu story. I, I wanted to approach it as if I was doing a 30 for 30 on, yeah. on Freddie Adu, which, wow. which has never been made, which is why I wanted to do this. Um, Cause I covered Freddie um, when he was emerging in 2003 and 2004, when MLS basically built their entire national media campaign for TV around Freddie Adu and this ad with Pele. And so it was a wild time. It was a year after I did my first 
cover story on LeBron James when I was still covering mm-hmm. basketball. And so like there, there seemed to be a real fascination in those days, maybe even more so than now with prodigies and, and yeah, you know, people were doing stories on, you know, Tiger Woods, Michelle Wee and, and all sorts of folks. And so I had always probably, well, probably for about four years, I had wanted to do this big Freddie Adu story somehow, whether it was a podcast series, whether it was an oral history or something like that. And never had really found the right time to do it because it's, you know, as the media landscape changes, it becomes harder and harder to do huge ambitious projects, which is unfortunate because that's what Sports Illustrated built its reputation on. And in some ways I built my reputation on. And so I had done a, a six episode podcast series a year ago for the, uh, it's kind of on the origin story of the US women's national team and the FIFA Women's World Cup, had a really good experience doing that, felt really good about the finished product. And, but just couldn't find a way at this version of Sports Illustrated to do that because big podcast projects are no longer even allowed to be done contractually under the new Maven operators. And so for somebody who was a writer at Sports Illustrated, there was kind of no way to do something like this anymore. And so then, uh, you know, then I departed Sports Illustrated, which is a a very long story that I won't get into here uh, with the new operators. But um, right after that, I spoke to um, my producer for my podcast series last year, Harry Swartout, who had left Sports Illustrated to join this new company called Blue Wire, which does ambitious sports podcasts. And he was like, why don't we do something? Why don't we do that Freddie Adu thing you wanted to do? And I was like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> and so uh, I spent the entire months of June, July, and August doing you know, two dozen interviews, averaging about an hour each. And, um, and eventually we got Freddie who had always turned down like any sort of interview request looking in detail at his entire career. So that's kind of where we are. Like, uh, we're just finishing up, uh, all the episodes and it comes out in mid November. That's so exciting. And then, you know, like one thing that really sticks out to me is the fact that Freddie was so open to doing it. So like, what do you think specifically about this type of project? made uh freddie so open to do it well he wasn't actually that open to do it he turned me down at first oh really okay, okay. Uh, yeah yeah so like gotcha. what was interesting was um i've been in sort of a similar situation before where i did my first book on david beckham's first yeah. two years in los angeles so it was on the 07 and 08 seasons the book yeah. comes out in 2009 and and for that one, David Beckham's people wanted like a million dollars for one-on-one interviews. Wow. And, and they also wanted to have control, even if that money was paid, they wanted control over the finished product, which is not really journalism. Yeah. So what ended up happening was uh, I got one-on-one interviews to everybody else on the ga- that Galaxy team and inside the Galaxy organization. Yeah. And... And I still got David Beckham's voice all over that book because he 
did do group interviews before and after almost every game because they were promoting heavily. Um, and, and what happened eventually was those first two seasons didn't go very well for Beckham's Galaxy. And everyone else talked to me. And in the end, Beckham's people wished they had talked to me for no payments because it ended up being a situation where he could have had a bigger voice in the narrative had he done that. Exactly. And instead, the, the more space was given to everyone else who did speak to me, like Landon Donovan, who was critical of Beckham as a captain and all sorts of things. Um, but the point of me telling that is that it's a little bit like, I don't want, I don't want to say I'm Bob Woodward, but like <laughs> Bob Woodward's like he, t everyone will talk to him. And so that's like why Donald Trump talked to Bob Woodward for his most recent book was because he knew that everyone else was going to talk to him and he hadn't spoken to Woodward for his previous book, felt like it would be in his interest to do it. Mm -hmm. And a little bit of that impacted this Freddie Adu podcast series because I got the support from Blue Wire, who was commissioning the podcast, that they would still do the podcast even if Freddie said no, which he did at first. Wow. So we did, I felt like there was a decent chance that if I did good journalism and interviewed two dozen people, that by the end of that, some of those people might talk to Freddie and say, you know, this is going to be the definitive you know, journalism on your story. It really is in your interest to talk. I see. And I, you know, that's, that's what happened. So like, at the end, right toward the end of all the interviews we'd done, Freddie reconsidered, some people talked to him, and, and I feel good about the fact that I earned that interview with my journalism. Yeah, exactly. That's cool. And, and you mentioned the, the Beckham experiment, which I've read, and uh, I remember there's like a passage where you talk about Alan Gordon walking into the locker room, and uh, he says, uh, I'm Alan, and you are. And I just, you know, that's, I think Alan Gordon's just such a funny character, and that, you know, definitely exemplifies that. Do you have any other, like, I guess, like, funny anecdotes, like, you know, similar to that, that most people haven't heard? I mean, there's, like, Alan Gordon is a star of that book, because I knew going into it, having interviewed Alan once for uh, the magazine story when Beckham first arrived and was on the cover, that for a book project, he would be great to follow over a period of a year or two, hmm. because... Alan Gordon, for one, was making next to no money. Like he was making like thirty thousand dollars a year at most. Uh, he had a you know a second job coaching youth soccer. He was living with two other Galaxy players who were making about the same money he was. And here comes David Beckham joining the team, making fifty million dollars a year in with you know including endorsements. And yet Alan Gordon is expected to start games with this $50 million a year guy and perform like making next to no money. And it was crazy. And yet Alan Gordon had this just infectious personality that like he could hang with like talking like, like with David Beckham. He became friends with David Beckham because like, you know, how many guys would do that the very first time that they meet Beckham where like, Alan says, you know, I'm Alan. And then David's about to walk on to the next guy. doesn't say his name. It's like, and you are. And, and that's awesome. You know, that's like, 
and, and Alan Gordon's been was that way with every single team he was on. And I love, I, th I think MLS has been built on the backs mostly of players like Alan Gordon mm -hmm. and love the fact that, that he became such a big character in that book. But like, you know, you talk about stories, you know, like in those days, MLS never did charter flights. And they did do a charter flight early on, like on Beckham's first road trip in 07 when he joined the team. And there's this scene where, you know, Alan Gordon's talking to the flight attendant and says, you know, this place is, you know, this plane is like nicer than my apartment. And, and, and she's like laughing at him thinking he's making a joke. He's like, no, I'm serious. <laughs> and just stuff like that. I, I, I forget even how I picked up these stories. I like, uh, there was a story of a, a team party, like Kobe Jones's birthday party. This is right before Beckham arrives and Alan Gordon's having a conversation with Joe Cannon, the goalkeeper. And somebody asked Joe Cannon if he's like dating and he says, no, I'm waiting for Beckham to arrive. <laughs> and, and Gordon just like jumps on it and he's like, dude, like you think that just because David Beckham arrives and, and you're going to be like in the orbit, like maybe far orbit that this will help you get a girlfriend. And, and, and Gordon's like, what are you going to do, Joe? Like pull out a Beckham, like a Beckham doll from your pocket and say, hey, <laughs> like, <laughs> like just stuff like that became fun stories to share in a book. <laughs> no, we love hearing that. And then like, you know, just, just about like, the whole concept of the book in general, something that was really fascinating about me is we sort of like, I don't know, in my opinion, at least we sort of see parallels with the whole like Ebra situation with an, an MLS. Like, I think we saw a lot of situations where like, in things like player interviews, he would like sell players out. Like, and obviously, you know, like he had, a, he had some great times on the pitch, some crazy goals. But at the end of the day, I think we really have to question like, how does having that huge, like extremely well-played, well-paid superstar on the pitch really affect team morale? Like, does it really help at the end of the day? Like, do, do you also see these same uh, similarities with the Ibra situation as well? Well, we, we saw an interview, maybe it was with the BSI podcast they did with Sebastian Lejet. And yeah that scene came up when they were in the wall together and Ibra literally physically pushed the jet out of the wall. And they talked about that. And, and the jet was like, he was a tough teammate to be with. Yeah. And, and it, it wasn't like he, he didn't find much humor in it actually. And wow. you got, you got the sense that he didn't mind that Ibrahimovic was no longer there. Um, it's funny because I interviewed Ibrahimovic right before the start of the 2019 season and I gave him a copy of my Beckham book, you know, with the galaxy. And I said, you know, I spent two years following Beckham with the galaxy and very Ebra like his, his response was like, well, you should do that with me. <laughs> and, and I was kind of like, you know, I kind of should, that would be a yeah. fun <laughs> insider account. Um, unfortunately he left, but um, I, I think like when you look at how much Chicharito is struggling right now with the galaxy as sort of Ibra's replacement and the team is struggling, um, you maybe even have a little more respect for what Ibra was able to achieve in terms of his goal scoring record there. Yeah. And he's obviously continued scoring goals for Milan mm -hmm. uh, since then. So, you know, like there's aspects of Ibrahimovic that I, you know, like, get a, li like a little 
tired yeah. personally, just because, you know, like he gets the, vi the virus recently and he's like, you know, you know, the virus will fear me, you know, yeah. like, you know, <laughs> you know stuff like that. You're, you're just like, nah, not this one. Um, <laughs> but, but that said, he's a great character. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, he's a, a villain, but also someone you want to follow and, and he scored a goal. So yeah. he did some things like his, his debut when he scored those goals to beat LAFC was one of the great moments in league history. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And I think like a lot of people just kind of accept Ibra as that character. And I remember right. listening to those BSI interviews and it almost seemed like when they, I think Gordon talked about, Alan Gordon talked about Beckham and it seemed like Beckham was, you know, although he was making that much money, he was always a good teammate in a way. Like he would take care of his players. So. I think he figured it out. I mean, like, it's interesting that I only covered the first two years of Beckham's experience, first season and a half, really. And, you know, my book didn't address the last three, four years where they won titles. And, and I think he learned some things about being a better teammate. And some of that stuff was just customs that maybe didn't exist in Europe that do more in the United States. Like, if you're an NFL quarterback, you give like nice gifts to your offensive linemen every year. That's just sort of expected. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Beckham didn't really know about that so much at first, but there was such an imbalance between how much money he was making and how much money the rest of the team was making. They really did have to sort of figure out how to do some of that stuff. Because, you know, it's like there's a story in the book about the first time Beckham goes out with his teammates to a, a team dinner on the road and the check comes and half the teammates think Beckham's going to pick it up and half the teammates are like, my money's as good as his money. I don't want him to pick it up. Mm. And that becomes a challenge. I see that. And then, yeah, just so just sort of, sort of, you know, continue from there. We've talked about a lot of your work, like the Freddie Adu podcast coming out, the David Beckham book. Um, and then you're working in Argentina, obviously, but I'm just wondering on a more general note overall, what's the most fulfilling piece that you've ever written, you think, or the piece that you've had the most fun written in, in writing in your, uh, in your long career? Wow. Um, <laughs> it's a tough one. I mean, in terms of most fulfilling, the, the, the Beckham book probably, okay. uh, followed closely by my second book, uh, on the craft of soccer position by position. Cause I got out of my comfort zone on that one. That was less storytelling than it was um, trying to spend time with really smart, really accomplished players mm -hmm. and get into how they do what they do and watch videos of them playing with them, you know, and, and asking them, peppering them with questions about the whole thing. And, and I just learned a ton and it was a great experience. I think my next book's going to involve more storytelling again because that's more in my wheelhouse. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, the Beckham book, in part because they're just, it was a high degree of difficulty book. Beckham wasn't going to give me one-on-one -on -one access. Uh, I had to, I was living in Baltimore covering a team in Los Angeles, flying a ton, and had, I think it was three months to write the entire book after I finished the reporting and was able to, do it and pull it off. Um, so that was, you know, probably the, the thing I'm most proud of in terms of my work. In terms of like most fun, you know, there's a lot of possibilities there. I mean, 
I look back, you know, I did our first cover story in LeBron back in 02. Yeah. <laughs> um, they ended up putting it on the cover, which I wasn't sure they would do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's held up. And so that I have a lot of good memories from that. You know, I, I took two trips for it. I went to Akron for one and, you know, drove LeBron and his buddies around to an NBA game where he met Michael Jordan afterward because wow. Jordan was playing in the game. That's great. That became the, the lead's the lead to the story. Yeah. And then I, I went back uh, a week or two later to, the, it was a famous high school game between LeBron's team and Carmelo Anthony's team yeah. in, right. in Trenton, New Jersey. And, and so, you know, covered that. Um, and, you know, so stuff like that's cool. Um, just like all the cover stories over the years, you know, and, and being there when you feel like soccer history is happening uh it's 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 pretty incredible just to have that that fortune and that luck to be there you know like for me in 2002 when the u.s men get to the quarterfinals of the world cup and like 20 year old landon donovan ends up on the cover of the magazine and you know the 99 women's world cup uh was just this monstrous cultural event of that entire summer and to to document that and and you know, like, and be a part of that was amazing. Uh, the Women's World Cups in 2015, 2019, um, you know, like, that's a really cool feeling. Like, you're, you know, World Cups, you know, feel like you're at the, at the center of the world. Like, everyone's watching that stuff, and, and so many people care about it. Um, you know, like, I love traveling still, so... You know, in 2010, I went to the African Nations Cup in Angola, of all places, and did a big magazine feature on Didier Drogba, kind of at the height of his powers. And here's this guy who got Ivory Coast to his first World Cup and got them back again in 2010 and had actually helped ceasefire a civil war with what that team was doing. And so to be able to tell that story, and I still joke with, with Drogba, like I, I say to him, I was like, no journalist has ever traveled farther to do an interview with you, my friend. So remember <laughs> that. Remember that. And and he was awesome. I, I like I like it was just a random corner of Angola. It wasn't even the capital city. And wow. and you know, I just got to him uh and we you know, he had this little bungalow he was staying in. Each of the Ivory Coast players had it, this heavily fortified area, because there had actually had been this horribly violent attack on one of the team buses from Togo in that tournament, uh, which was really scary and caused SI to, like, not want me to go. And I had to go through, through, like, the embassy and get security and all that stuff. But it's a great memory because, like, I end up talking for two hours with Drogba in this random place and, and got a really good story out of it. That's really cool. Yeah, and you mentioned the, the Women's World Cups. You know, I, I follow you on Twitter and you do a lot to cover the women's game, which, you know, has made me such a big U.S. Uh, women's national team fan. Who's one, uh, like, up-and-coming female player that many people don't know about? Well, just this week, Katarina Macario got her U.S. citizenship. And and here's a player who's been a force at Stanford and still has a couple other things she needs to do to be totally eligible to play for the U.S., but it's looking like she's going to be eligible 
before the Olympics and could be a part of the Olympic team. And that's just really exciting, um, you know, that this might happen sooner than we expected. I and mean, there's other players too. Sophia Smith just got called into the national team camp. She's played well for Portland Thorns. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious to see if we can sort of see a, a rebirth of Mallory Pugh um, and, you know, she could potentially get back in the mix. I kind of hope she does. Um, and, and then there's going to be, you know, some of the old guard still fighting for, for spots, you know, if that's maybe Carly Lloyd, Megan Rapino hasn't really been involved in soccer much in 2020. Like, will she be able to get back, to the level that she was at in 2019, which was World Player of the Year. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I know we've seen like a, a lot, a big trend of a lot of uh, our like the U.S. women's players going to England that like, you know, like Man United, Tottenham. Do you think this is going to be like a new trend of a lot of players like leading for Europe or is U.S. Uh, sort of going to be the main league for uh, soccer in the women's game, you think, for a while now? I mean, for me, the big question is what will happen post-virus? Because yeah. the reason that these U.S. women's stars are – there's five of them now in England is because yeah. they couldn't get enough games in the United States because we've done such a poor job on the virus. Yeah. I How see. many of those would have stayed in NWSL if they'd been able to have like a, a regular season yeah, as opposed to the few games they have had? Like I, I, I doubt Alex Morgan who just had a, a baby would, would have gone to, to England. England yeah. So um, I do think though, from talking to, the people in the women's game and the players themselves, they like the fact that more English teams, more European teams are spending much more money on women's soccer now because that's great for the market for players, you know, and it's going to force the NWSL to pay their players more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and you did a lot of work for Fox as well. And there's a lot of U.S. women's players and men's players that transition to broadcasting. Who's one, you know, U.S. men's or women's player, that you know is currently playing that you could see having a broadcasting career after they retire. Good question. Um, I'm trying to think of the players that I always go to for quotes. <laughs> you know, because like it's it's not a surprise to me that Stu Holden and Tim Howard are working in television now because those were two guys back at the World Cup in 2010 around that time that I would always go to after a game. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Brad Guzan actually is somebody, I think, who who might be in that position. Uh, Michael Bradley, potentially. Uh, I think he's got a great analytical mind. Part of it, though, is I don't know if he wants to go into coaching as opposed to media. I've never had that conversation with him yet. Um, you know, and, and sometimes you get a surprise. Like, I joke with Taylor Twelman. Like, when Taylor was a player – not a great interview. Like, he didn't really, he didn't go out of his way for the media back then. And I never had friends with him, but like, like he knows this too. Like he, like, so you know, you can't always expect it. You know, he's terrific. And, and so you never know exactly. Obviously like the, the higher the level you get to as a player, the easier it's going to be to, to at least get the opportunity. Um, to, to do media like we're already seeing Megan Rapino hosting a show on HBO like I think the question with her is is she gonna even want to do soccer media you know or does she have aspirations of being the next Rachel Maddow that might be more of a of a likely scenario um you know it, it's it's going to be interesting like you look at the, the U.S. women's team now like 
is Alex Morgan somebody who is going to end up working in in media? I could I could see that potentially. Um, like you just you know, you, you don't totally know, and then you know, and sometimes when that red light goes on, people can be really engaging, and, and then that red light goes on, they're like they turn into a frog, and and so you just kind of have to find out. <laughs> That's funny, and then you you know you mentioned the. Uh... Obviously, your job, you know, revolves around about getting, like, the best quotes from players, like, looking for players that are specifically quotable. So, like, you know, recently on Netflix, I forgot the name of the show, unfortunately, but, like, it's about coaches in sports. And, like, there's one episode about Jill Ellis and just, like, her mentality towards the women's national team. So, I was wondering if there's any interviews you've had where, like, you've heard some, like, quotes from players or anything about a player that really struck out to you in terms, stuck out to you in terms of, like, their mindset and made you realize how much they really cared for the game or how different they really were on the athletic level based on their mentality or how they came off yeah i mean it's it's interesting i don't know if anything totally stands out like when like i i, I sort of assume for a baseline like these are really competitive people if yeah. they've gotten to this point sure. um from a journalistic perspective it can be really challenging to find stories or get quotes that show don't tell about mm -hmm. somebody's competitiveness because it's kind of a cliche at this point that Michael Jordan didn't you know hated losing so much that if he was losing a board game he'd throw it over yeah, and yeah. like, like <laughs> and and I believe that but I also have seen that story a lot for describing a lot of people. Um, you know the my favorite story about Alex Morgan actually when I did a, a feature on her once was learning that her dad would give her like money bonuses for performance and and you know this was not like a wealthy family either <laughs> and and she so was so driven by these things that he ended up having to like i think he bought her a lexus or something which like <laughs> had not bargained for when he was first like trying to incentivize her but yeah. she like took it to such a level that he sort of had to do it at that point. Crazy. Wow. Oh my God. So yeah, we're coming towards the end of our time and we really appreciate, you know, you taking the time to talk to us today. Um, we have a little segment where we make a personalized four question quiz for you. It's called the back four quiz. It originated on studio 90 with Neil Beathy and we kind okay. of, we, we had him on the show a couple weeks ago and we did it with him and we've kind of done it with um, our guests after that. So first cool. question. Um, you've covered a lot of Bob Bradley and his son, Michael's career. What was Michael's first European team that he played for? Here in Bean, right? Yes. Yep. Yes, sir. Yeah. All right. Got one. <laughs> All right. Next one. Oh, this one seems kind of tough. Okay. Name three players who made the 2010 U S world cup 30 man roster, but didn't make the final 23. Ooh, 2010, huh? 2010. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Wow. Um, Heath Pierce? Yep. Yep. Um, 2010. Um, Connor Casey? No. No. No? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I was going to say Connor Casey and Brian Ching. Brian Ching. Ching yeah. is one, yeah. Because I, I remember thinking that one of those two guys had to make the team. Yeah. 
because they played similar roles and then neither one did. But Connor Casey didn't even get to the uh, the 30 man. Jesus, uh, that's crushing for Casey. <laughs> remember, he, he had the, the goals, the multi-goal game that in the game they clinched down in Honduras. And he wasn't in the 30? Are you kidding me? Um, okay, give me one more shot here. Um, 2010, uh, probably Davies? No. No, he, he didn't even make the 30, right? He okay. had that 2009 yeah. uh, injury, right? That, I yeah. knew he had the injury, but he had like fought and fought and fought to get yeah, I don't think close. He still the 30. Okay. Um, <laughs> I was um, What about Eddie Johnson? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. one. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, another Victory. one that I find interesting was Alejandro Bedoya, who made the next roster and then became, you know, a key figure for the national team. He was on the 30 man, but didn't make that uh, World Cup. Okay. So, next question uh, Which U.S. women's national team player on the 2015 team was the only one who was also on the 1999 team? Uh, Christy Rampon. Yep. Yep. There we go. <laughs> and then finally, last one. Uh, who, since we know you're a Princeton man, so who played against Princeton in the first ever intercollegiate football game? Rutgers. Yes, yeah. there we go. <laughs> Very impressive. Okay. Very impressive. We'll say, we'll say four for four. four yeah, for four. four for four. Four for four. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, listen, Grant, it means a lot that you, uh, that you dropped by and gave us your time today. We really enjoyed talking to you since you're someone that we admire so much. Um, you know, like one thing that we do at the end of uh, all of our episodes, just to sort of close it out. So, you know, we, a lot of our... Um, uh, viewers are, you know, college students, like sort of like looking for career advice, trying to get involved in areas like that right now. Um, if you just had to give like a quick, like, like piece of advice to people trying to find their area of passion and really take that on and like pursue that, what would you say to that, that specifically? I mean, I, I think what I would say like in general is, is that the media landscape is totally changing all the time yeah. and that even somebody like me, I've been doing this for 23 years now. I don't, I don't know exactly where it's headed. And <laughs> so, um, and the, and the pandemics accelerated a lot of the stuff we were seeing happening with, with sports media. And so like, I think it's just important for anybody, but you know, who's, who's my age, but also your age mm -hmm. to, to, to be good at, to, you know, be versatile and, and to be good at different things. Um, and if it's journalism that you're doing to be good at writing, at storytelling, to be, uh, to be good in radio slash podcast, to be comfortable in front of a camera, whether you're, you know, standing and delivering two or three minutes in terms of a report, as opposed to even answering questions, which is a slightly easier thing to do, but it's a skill as well. Um, you know, for me, I remember that 2010 World Cup was the first time I ever did a stand-up on my own in front of a camera where I was delivering like a two, three-minute report. And it's not the easiest thing to do at first when nobody's prompting you with questions. And so you have to get a lot of reps. And that's when I started to get them and got more comfortable at it. But, um, you know, like timeless stuff can be valuable you know be able if you're working in soccer in america learn spanish be able to work in spanish um and do interviews and connect with interviewees that way um so that's that's kind of what i would suggest and then also you know figure out what you are most passionate about and, and what you you think you're best at and it's still possible to do those things i, I don't want to be one of these like 
grizzled journalist that tells young people who want to get into the business, don't, <laughs> you know, that's not cool. Yeah. And, and I think really dispiriting, like for people who want to get in, I still think there's, there's space to do this type of stuff. And I also think in soccer, we've got a world cup coming to the U S in, in 2026. Yeah. And so like, there's going to be a growth that continues. This sport is going to continue to grow and there's always going to be a demand for good storytellers. Awesome. Yeah. So yeah, that's great advice. And we really appreciate, you know, taking an hour of your time to talk to us and, and we'll, we'll look forward to the Freddie do podcast in the future. So thanks again. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.